This episode of Designed by Architectural Record is sponsored by Vitro Architectural Glass, continually advancing how buildings look and perform. According to recent studies, Vitro Glass, formerly PPG Glass, is one of the industry's most respected glass manufacturers and responsible for many of the industry's most specified products, including high-performance solar band solar control, low-E glasses, and Starfire Ultra Clear Glass. Explore products and request curated sample kits at vitroglazing.com. One more time, that's vitro, V-I-T-R-O, glazing.com. You learn a tremendous amount about different building types. You know, the hope is you become a, an extremely well-rounded architect and you take those struggles, those lessons, those, those creative solutions from these various building types and then present them and use them in a project that comes into our door and help the client be part of that process. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Designed an architecture podcast. We appreciate you listening, and once you're finished, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, rate us, and leave a comment. Enjoy the show, and have a wonderful day. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Designed with me, your host, Aaron Prinz. As always, I just wanted to start by saying thank you to all of you for listening to the podcast and the comments on the iTunes review section. I really appreciate it, and uh, be sure to follow us on Instagram at designed.podcast for everything we have coming up. We have some really great interviews. We have architects with Moja Softy's office, Morphosis, and we have a very special guest that's going to be coming up in the beginning of December that I'm really excited for, so uh, stay tuned for that. Today's episode is the third and final installment of Page Week here on the Design Podcast. We've had some really great talks. We had talked first with Talmadge Smith about the addition of Fountain Place in Dallas, and then we talked to Chris Walsh about all the things coming up in Austin. And this week was part of Austin Design Week, and we feature Josh Coleman and Brandon Townsend of Page, and they're talking about 70 Rainy. It's a building right on Town Lake or Ladybird Lake here in Austin, Texas, that really has defined kind of what a skyscraper can be within the city of Austin. So I'm really excited to share it with you. And we even go into some stuff about gentrification and just where the city of Austin is headed. And real quickly, just a quick warning, we did record this live in front of a crowd. So there are some audio things that come along with that. I hope it's not too distracting. Uh, It's a really great conversation, lots to take away from it. So sit back, relax, enjoy. Here we go with Josh Coleman and Brandon Townsend. At the page office in downtown Austin and we have images of 70 rainy up behind us and I think if you guys look out to the window uh, you can see 70 rainy off there in the distance so real quickly can you just take us through kind of the design process of 70 rainy and I mean Austin Texas there's so many buildings going up here really what sets 70 rainy apart from uh, the rest of them going up in town so 70 rainy is a really amazing and kind of unique uh, confluence of things that kind of came together um, so I'm going to spill the beats here and give everybody a little bit of a secret into a successful residential building, uh, and that's views and kitchens and baths. <laughs> and it's, it's a lot more than that, but th- that is a big part of what drove the design for 70 Rainy, particularly the view. If you look at a site plan and kind of understand where Rainy is situated within the city, you understand it's at the southeast corner, looking back uh, at the city a little bit further to the north and to, to the north-northwest a little bit. But we're a little south, and so the view of the site, as, as it was, really didn't take the full advantage of what that view could be, looking down the lake, looking back at the city. Uh, so through our analysis of the site and understanding the urban context, we began to look at studies that said, well, what if we rotate the tower on its site in order to really take advantage of that view the most? So in, in some respects, the most formative component to Sunny Rainy is, in fact, its site and its relationship to downtown. That develops sort of a parallelogram building shape that you see for the tower. 
as you walk around the building, it's incredibly dynamic. As those uh, angles go from obtuse to acute, as you kind of walk, walk around and see the different relationships that the building has to the base down below. So views were a really, really big one. Uh, I think that the other two components that I kind of would be remiss not to point out or incredibly impactful to the design uh, was the client had a really, really strong vision about what they wanted. They knew they were coming into the Rainy Street District. And that's the other component is we've got this really incredible unique neighborhoods to respond to. And so in some respect, you know, trying to couple the, the, the client's vision with what they wanted to do on Rainy Street with that neighborhood, it really became for us not only form-driven in terms of what a developer needs in a developer-driven project, but the language of architecture became incredibly important to find the right language for this building that met the client's needs, fit in well with the neighborhood, uh, and really we wanted to just kind of support the rainy vibe. With that said, I mean, Rainy Street, it's... For those of you listening that aren't in Austin, Texas, it's a very unique sort of neighborhood where it's these bungalow-style houses that have all been turned into restaurants and bars, and it's a very hip spot to be, you know, in the nightlife. But the scale of that section of town, it's all one, two stories at most. So one, I guess, how does that fit in? How does the tower fit into that? And two, what do you say to those people that liked Rainy Street, how it was? Well, it was a it was zone single-family residential until 2006. So in 2006... City of Austin rezoned it to the CBD, the Central Business District. So you started seeing these much increased FAR that was available to developers, which becomes a very attractive incentive. You started to see several towers. Uh, rainy, 70 Rainy by far was not the first tower within the district. I think there's the shore that's over there. There's uh, Windsor on the lake and there's several existing towers. But to your point, it's, it's very difficult then to translate that high-rise tower, kind of in the heart of 70 Rainy, that was I think, occupying four residential sites previously and trying to then translate the scale of a single-family bungalow home into a multifamily high-rise building. I think Josh alluded to some of the efforts that we went through with looking at the scale of the building entrance, the kind of the setbacks. We did a lot of analysis along the perimeter of the street to interpret the front porch of a single-family residential house and created more of a, a welcoming entrance to the lobby of the building. We, we introduced some scalar elements like a trellis that almost abstracts the wood framing of a, a wood bungalow-style house of the roofing components. Yeah, well, one of the other things to add is, you know, part of the, the client vision, I think this is where their vision really started to kind of take, take root on, on, on the site. The building is effectively considered, I think, as, as sort of a three, three-part scheme. You've got the base uh, at the bottom, is kind of the parking garage structure. And there's a zone in the middle, that's the amenity deck, and then a tower up above. So by really giving those three components different languages and different materials and different, you know, kind of qualities of design, I think we're able to successfully break up the scale of the building. That's kind of the overall you know, strategy, the 30, you know, four-story tower. But then the street life is incredibly important as well. Rainies are super vibrant. There are restaurants, there are bars, people coming, you know, up and down. Uh, it's got this really amazing character that I think is just really attracted, you know, everyone. I think it's a, um, a destination from even folks all over the state as well. It's pretty well known. So how do we then take that base component out of this three-part scheme and really integrate it into the street life? So the owner was incredibly adamant about, we're going to have a restaurant, we're going to have a bar, we're going to continue the themes of the businesses that are already here and, and quite honestly, thriving like crazy and growing. Uh, so it was really us and 
a, a page than trying to find a way. So how do we you know, institute a, a restaurant at the bottom of the parking garage? And so we kind of got enamored with this idea of the, the front porch and the front lawn. So we started looking at the bungalows that Brandon mentioned a little bit, and how far are, are those set back? What is that dimension at the front of the building? So for the restaurant, we carved out a really, really generous patio that we sort of you know, likened to these front lawns of the bungalows and gave that space back to the street. So it wasn't just the building face coming, you know, slamming right down, right onto the curb. You really get a sense of the kind of a, a generosity of space that it's given back to rainy. And then the bar was like the, the best part of it in some respect because it, it really opened up to the landscape quite a bit. And there's this really grand, welcoming stair that encourages you to kind of go up right off the street. So we felt like, you know, with the, you know the, these gestures from the client about providing these uh, amenities, and then we developed a language that was very much, you know, trying to weave together architecture and, and, and landscape. And so that's kind of the two-part strategy of weaving into the, the scale and the character of Rainy Street. Well, through this process, I'm sure you've learned a lot about the neighborhood, and, and you now have a new tower going up, 44 East, which recently broke ground last week. Can you just tell us a little bit about that project and maybe some things that kind of differentiates itself from the rest of Rainy Street? The interesting thing about this project is it's, I don't know, maybe 200, 300 feet away from 70 Rainy, but the neighborhood itself, the site is much more quiet. It has less of the entertainment component that 70 Rainy does. So it's directly adjacent to the Waller Creek Beach, this amazing piece of property that the residents will get to, to have a wonderful view on, but it's, it's more quiet. It definitely has a, a sense of a residential neighborhood and less of an entertainment component to it, although it's 200 feet away. It's strikingly different from a, almost from a personality standpoint of the site. What does each site have to offer? They both share amazing views of Town Lake, and I think you see how the building form of 70 Rainy tried to take advantage of that with the rotation and trying to give the units that are all on the west side of that building the, the most expansive view of the lake. And I think we captured it at 44 East as best we could with uh, kind of some shifting of volumes to maximize views around buildings that Windsor on the Lake presented a bit of a challenge for us. Real quickly, can we just take a second? Can you kind of tell our audience here where y'all grew up and out of all the things you could have done in life, why the heck architecture? I'm going to let you take that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go first. I'll, I'll take this one. So I, I grew up in, in Dallas for elementary school and then lived in San Antonio for a little while. Um, moved back to Dallas. And, and so I'm, I'm definitely a Texan, you know, by, by birth and by race. So I've got the, the Texas kind of spirit, you know, flowing through me. And then it, I think it's, it's kind of, I guess I didn't realize how pervasive it was until I, I lived someplace else. And it was kind of interesting to understand how, how Texan, you know, you, you may feel until you kind of see yourself someplace else. But my parents were very instrumental, I think, in kind of shepherding, you know, my early kind of enthusiasm for architecture. My dad is, uh, he works for a financial information services company. My mom has her own CPA practice. It had nothing to do with architecture. Some of their friends were, were practicing and it kind of got me really interested, you know, in, in learning more about it. And I think that enthusiasm and kind of interest in it just sort of grew out of watching and, and learning from uh, some of their friends that, that would come and, and visit with and actually wound up working for one of them over summers for a little bit and learning a lot more about the profession. So that, that was really a good introduction to the field. Brandon, you had a little bit of a different path, I think. And I think this is something I can relate to than the traditional. I wanted to be an architect and I'm going to go for it. Yeah, I just found out how to spell architecture last week. So <laughs> I'm still relatively uh, new to the profession, so to speak. No, I 
My background, uh, I, I grew up in Austin, so I'm the rainbow unicorn in the city. My dad was an automotive manager for Sears uh, for about 15 years, and my mom had the hardest job. She was a stay-at-home mom and tried her best to keep two young boys out of trouble as much as possible. But uh, I spent a lot of my time playing soccer, and really that's that's where my, my passion was, was becoming a professional soccer player. and pursued that as hard as I could for a long time. I didn't have anybody who worked in architecture. I wasn't really exposed or influenced to architecture until very late in the game. And I was always curious about drawing and art and my mom's side of the family is a family of artists. And so drawing and creativity was, was there, but didn't translate into the architectural component. Eventually through a series of comical events, found myself you know, working through uh, architecture firms and fighting my way to get into the program at University of Texas, and lo and behold, 20 years later, I'm building high rise. Well, so both of you have worked in a variety of different regions across the country and scales of firms and everything. What is it about Page that kind of attracts you here? I mean, besides the office coffee? <laughs> yeah, there are several things. I mean, that's, gosh, it's, uh, you know, I, growing up here, it was really special, and, and I worked for some really wonderful architects directly out of school. I worked for uh, David Heyman, which, uh, you know, I hope everyone gets to meet at some point in their life. He's one of those uh, really kind of influential individuals that once you meet him, your life just changes. Same with Larry Speck. So I found myself, after graduating, working with David for a while, and things ran its course, and I moved up to New York and Boston and worked up there for a while and had an opportunity to come back to Page and... This was all during the period of time where none of the development that you're seeing right now that Austin is going through, it did not exist. There was very little development. I think Page Office, in fact, was kind of at the forefront of building a relatively tall building, which is only what, seven stories tall, in downtown Austin. And there was a lot of single-family residential work that was here. Moving back from the Northeast, I had an opportunity to work for a company who could offer a variety of architecture at all scales. We do single-family residential seen through 70 rainy and 44 east that we're doing large-scale multifamily and we do healthcare, we do all sorts of things that was attractive to me to be able to kind of have the opportunity to work for a company that would support single-family residential design and and larger scale buildings that have a huge impact on the urban fabric and the people I mean, meeting people like josh and talmage and daniel uh, some of those people are are great friends besides colleagues We've seen the emergence in Austin in the, f- the last few years of kind of the, su- the super firms. You have Perkins and Will came in, Ginsler's now here. How has that impacted kind of the work you do? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a great question. I mean, we've, you know, Page has been in, in Austin and in Texas since 1898. So in some respect, we've been doing so much work in, in Austin. But now we, we have other firms that are coming in here to do work that we're constantly positioning ourselves against. And, you know, and a little bit of my background, too, when I, I was an undergrad at UC Arlington, uh, did my architecture undergrad there, and you know, went to the Northeast for grad school, and then, you know, worked in New York for a few years for two firms that I think could best fall under the moniker of Starkitect, and they have a very, very signature style. So you kind of go into that firm sort of knowing what you're going to get, right? They, they produce a certain type of building. They produce a certain type of architect, for that matter. Uh, but moving back here, and I think what is also a differentiator for Page, and what really attracted me to Page as well, is that we're a firm that really allows us to become experts, I think, in our clients, right? We're not necessarily experts in a style or experts in a certain pedagogy. It kind of makes practicing really challenging to kind of take upon that, that whole project. 
right? Like it's not enough just to innovate in program or to innovate in materials or space. We actually are trying to leverage all of those in deference to what our client's goals are and what our client's vision is. So I tend to think like in some respect, Paige does the work that I don't see a lot of other firms doing. In some respect, you'll never be able to sort of point to a building and say, hey, that's a Paige building, but it'll be a damn good building <laughs> is what we're hoping for. And that's what really, I think, allows Paige to provide the best service for our clients because we, we don't really limit ourselves. Uh, we try to look at a lot of different uh, spheres of design and, and uh, allow a lot of influences to come into our work. And the last thing I'll say is, Brandon mentioned, we're incredibly multidisciplinary practice. So we, you know, we have engineers up here, master planners, science and technology experts, branding and graphics. So all that stuff, all that is kind of in the mix up here. And we try to you know, feed off of each other's ideas and, and then bring that to bear for the, for the solutions we're trying to present for our, uh, our clients. And to elaborate on that, I think that's really one of the unique things is when we come into architecture and maybe we have a vision of where we want to go or what our career path may be or what building typology we, we would like to focus on. I know that others have had the same experience. I've worked on various types of projects. I've worked on the hospitality side. I've worked on the data centers. I've worked in the healthcare. I've worked on industrial waste buildings. And you learn a tremendous amount about different building types. You know, the hope is you become a, an extremely well-rounded architect and you take those struggles, those lessons, those those creative solutions from these various building types and, and then present them and use them in a project that comes into our door and help the client be part of that process. There's some real benefit to Paige as a practice by having these cross disciplines in-house. Well, you've also brought up that you grew up here in Austin and the last 10, 20 years, there's just been dramatic change in the city and the skyline and the income requirements to live here. And the traffic. And the traffic. I'm from San Francisco, so people oh, yeah. complain about the You're traffic, like, and I'm great. like, we're going 20 miles an hour, relax. Like, But can you just talk about kind of the role and the responsibility that these design firms have in developing the city? And also, gentrification is an issue that's facing multiple cities across the country. Again, I'm from San Francisco. So how do you take into consideration that aspect when you're designing something, especially a high-rise residential building? Josh? Well, I think mean, <laughs> mean, the, the, the pause is sort of indicative. I mean, it, it is an incredibly challenging issue. I mean, there's so many kind of forces at work, you know, shaping our cities and creating these, these things that we have to solve as a society. And architecture is obviously one of the, the, those vehicles to, to help solve it. One of the things that we can do, there are probably two really big things that we, we play a role at. I mean, one is, you know, helping to shape policy. You know, be involved in the discussions, be involved in what's happening, you know, from a, from a city standpoint. Uh, understand what sort of vehicles are being put in place that affect the built environment, that are incentivizing development. Are those appropriate? Are those really solving problem? Are those moving the needle a little bit? So kind of be aware and, and make sure that you know, we know what's happening and influence the conversation, right? Have a seat at the table. Uh, I think Paige has always tried to be a good, a good citizen here and to make sure that, you know, we do have a seat at the table and we are in helping to influence those conversations in a positive way. And we are a very large firm. We have considerable resources. And so part of using those resources can be to help uh, those organizations within the city as well that are trying to tackle the problem of affordability and other initiatives, like for instance, we're, we're working with Habitat for Humanity on a project here in, in Austin at a substantially reduced fee. So that's something that we can do to kind of give back. So it's not only 
giving back our expertise to helping them achieve their their project at a little bit easier path and to kind of get there financially. So I think that's also part of our, our role as well, is not just policy, but to help influence and create the projects that we hope allow the city to encourage economic diversity throughout all the different neighborhoods of the city. Yeah, what a, what a tough, uh, tough topic to kind of address, um, but needs to have some focus put on for sure. You know, there are things in our land development code that do exist to kind of help acknowledge some sort of affordable housing. Developers are aware of them. We're extremely aware of them. And I think they start the conversation. And there are some, some opportunities that hopefully or, or might be already baked into the draft of the land development code that speak about how else can the code help with gentrification. Right now, currently, the land development code requires, you know, for residential development, I think it's a 5% for affordable housing that needs to be into your project. But, for example, some might say that that's not truly affordable housing. I can't, can't disagree with that. I think that's the hard thing, right? That's the tough thing is how do you define it? And in the code, the city will define it based on a reduced market rate. Well, what's the market rate? And how does that become fair for developers to then offer that affordable housing back? Development is good. It's a good thing for a city. How, how can it contribute to better affordable housing? I don't have an answer on that. I, I don't. But I think there are ways that we can get there. I think that does come more into the shaping of the policy and trying to help city officials understand what can we do as designers to kind of help and how can developers still be profitable? Because at the end of the day, you might not want to hear it, but that is a reality that that projects need to be profitable in order for development to occur. There are too many city restrictions put on it to where developers going to be discouraged. They will not build. Now, maybe that development stops gentrification. How does that support a city growth? So it's a really, really tough thing that's very difficult to answer, but it should be a, a broader spotlight needs to be put on this topic. Yeah, and what Brandon was saying too kind of, you know, remind me of the notion of, you know, as, as Austin intensifies and grows, I mean, we're trying to create a real mixed use in your neighborhoods here. And that's a good thing, right? That, that reduces transportation burdens. That reduces all sorts of resource burdens. We're able to, to really allow the vehicles that are in, in place for development to, to create the, these mixed-use urban environments. We, we can't stop that. It, it That's right. It needs to continue to be encouraged. But at the same time, you know, as the Land Development Code does go through its kind of gyrations, I think it is where they acknowledge that there are certain things that could be understood that could help influence the built form. Like we are kind of brainstorming the other day, what if you created a, a density bonus to build a, a below-grade parking structure? Right, that would allow more residential, you know, up above or more office. Uh, so that would have a better impact on the urban environment, the urban pedestrian experience. And so I think incentivizing those types of moves are going to be one way to move forward. The developers are making money; they're doing well. You see that all, all around us. Uh, but what can we do as a, from an overall city standpoint to help kind of influence that uh, a little bit more? Will be uh, incredibly important moving forward. Switch gears here just a little bit. What's your proudest moments in architecture? I think for me, like I said, I, I had a hard time when the decision came that I was you know, ready to kind of start pursuing architecture. My father, uh, he didn't quite understand it. He you know, worked in a mechanic shop. He you know, became a wonderful finance advisor. And so there was a very analytical part of him that he had to struggle with. So in school, uh, I took a trip. I took my parents to the San Antonio Public Library. I believe it was Ricardo Lagaretta. We walked in, we just toured the facility, 
I just was watching my father, who, who doesn't say a lot, and I just saw this look on his face. Didn't kind of interrupt him. We got through the building, and when we were done, I said, well, Dad, what did you, what did you think? And he said, do you realize that that building used to be Little Sears building? It used to be this brown, dark building. No sunlight, no color, nothing. As you guys know, the, the library is extremely vibrant. Lots of daylight, lots of play and sun and shadow. And I cannot believe that this building exists here and was something that I've never been able to experience. And I think that, for me, was something where my, I got the support of my father who kind of understood what I was trying to do. I couldn't explain to him what I wanted to do. I couldn't use words to help him understand why I wanted to do what architecture could be. But I think showing him that building and helping him realize what architecture can be about, it's a, an experiential process. I, I think that that for me right now kind of started me on this career path. And without that kind of understanding, I think I, I would have, I could have possibly ended up in finance and that would have been a very bad move for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Josh? Yeah, I mean, there are so many rewarding things about, you know, our architecture and, you know, it's kind of hard to kind of crystallize it into one moment. But I, I think for me, it, it goes back to this notion of, you know, understanding architecture is an incredibly public act. And, you know, what we're trying to do ultimately just goes out to the city and to the public for them to use. It's never hit me more than pleading the work for Dell Medical School. That was an incredibly, I think, important project for CAGE, for the city, for UT, for the, the health community. So watching you know, that project you know, start from an idea from various parties to get funded, to then turn into a you know, master plan, that then turned into a series of buildings, and then getting to play a small role in the development of the building, and then seeing it kind of go out to the public. And then the, the medical school itself, right? The medical school is not the building that we made. The medical school is the students, the faculty, and, and all that. So then watching them go into the building, that was a bit of a game changer for me. That was like, oh yeah, this isn't just about that limestone or that, you know, the color of that metal fin. All, all, all the stuff that we obsess over as architects. It's actually about that group of people who just went into that building and are going to help make everybody's lives that much better. And I was humble. It was humbling to, to realize that we played a part in making their mission a little bit easier, uh, a little bit better day, day to day. What's the biggest setback you've encountered in your career and uh, how did you use that to kind of motivate yourself to get to where you are today? Countless number of uh, you know, setbacks and it's, you know, I kind of almost hesitate to call this one a setback. But it, I mean, for me, it was a big setback when I joined a, a new firm and, you know, hey, you're going to work on this project. It was a really incredible project. It was in Miami on, on, on the beach. Really, really cool residential building. And I was, like, super excited. I couldn't wait to, you know, start my first day and go right to work at it. found out when, when I got there that morning that two of the principals had kind of duped it out. And I was going to go work on a laboratory building in Ithaca. Middle of CDs, right? And I was, like, it was a pretty good design office. And, you know, I was a burgeoning designer and, like, just wanted to, you know, show everybody what I could do as a designer. And I was immediately thrust into, like, middle of CDs. It's like, oh. And I took it pretty hard. I was, I was a little bummed, right? And it probably took me two or three weeks before I realized, well, what are you doing? This is a great office. Learn everything you can from this experience. Just get work your tail off. And that's exactly what I did. And I think that was the real good lesson for me to learn then, too. It's like, there are so many things in architecture and in life in general that get thrown our way that we can't control. Like, I had no idea those two principles were going to duke it out and be like, I've got to have somebody to help me finish these. But you can always make the most 
and, and don't let it kind of throw you off your game. You just gotta gotta react and pull it back, you know. And so I, I did work really hard, learned a tremendous amount on that project, and. So for the same principle that I got switched over to, got to work on his next project, which was awesome. Which was, you know, it was my first, you know, high-rise project. We actually got to work on four high-rises. So I took what probably would have been a fun project in Miami, slogged through this kind of laboratory building, and were able to come out on the other end with, you know, one of my dream projects that I learned so much on. And Brandon? Besides the uh, economic downturn that we all experienced, uh, I think my biggest setback well, it occurred before I was even in architecture school. Like I said, I was focused on soccer and trying to make that a true career. And I worked for an architecture firm for a while before I even applied to the architecture school. And let's just say working your way through school, trying to play soccer for the university and trying to study all in 24-hour days uh, is not possible. And something had to give. And unfortunately, it was, uh, it was my grades, which was apparently important to the university. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it as well, and I've seen it. <laughs> you know, I wanted to get into the architecture school. I was determined beyond belief to find an opportunity there. And I remember this very vividly. I, I walked up to the receptionist's desk trying to make an appointment with the dean. I had no idea who the dean of the school was. It turns out to be this guy that some of us may have heard of, Larry Speck, who's senior principal at Page, was the dean for the architecture school for a long time, is probably one of the largest single individual influencers for many of our architecture careers. I said, I need to go talk to Larry Speck. Well, I was lucky enough that he was there and got into the room and we had this wonderful conversation and, and Larry was sitting in this beautiful office and there was some Corbusier furniture on one side and some Alto sculptures and here I was and pair of crutches and the oversized backpack and having this conversation about architecture. And it, it was great. It was a wonderful conversation until he asked what my GPA was. <laughs> I think at the time the architecture transfer GPA was a 3.5. And I think my GPA at the time was a 2.2. So we had this great conversation and Larry was really, you know, trying to come up with creative alternatives for me to go kind of pursue architecture and kind of did not take no for an answer and told him, well, you know, if you can't help me, let me know who can. I'll, I'm happy to go speak with them. He said, well, that sounds great. He gave me the name of the individual and I went about my merry way and came back the next day. He wanted me to talk to the associate dean and Larry had already talked to the associate dean at the time and said, you know, this kid, probably not the smartest person in our program, but I think he's going to have the gumption to get through this program. And so, you know, we worked out a... a we worked out a compromise to get into the architecture program. And like I said, I was kind of late to the game getting into the School of Architecture. And I think from that point on, it set me on a path to work with Josh for 12 years and be as happy as a clam. So, uh, What advice would you have for the young architect coming out of school that maybe wants to have the type of career that you've had? And I will tell you that you need to be passionate about architecture. If you have any doubts, don't do it. It's a hard, long career. It's extremely rewarding, extremely exciting. The universities will can teach you how to draw, teach you how to design, but they can't force you to be passionate. That has to come from within. And if you don't have it, and you'll know if you have it or not, I would say pursue something else. Be an advocate for architecture. Be a patron of architecture. As long as you're passionate, and this goes with everything, obviously, uh, maintain passion. Josh just shared a story about working on a project that really wasn't that exciting, but it's architecture, and he... He knew it, and he struggled through the drawings and put him in a position for the next project to be where he wanted to be. I think that's the advice I would add. And study and read, and don't have a 2.2 GPA. <laughs> <laughs> and Josh? 
So there's so many things that you know, I think we're, we're, we're asked of as architects to be well-read, right? Know what's going on culturally, know what's you know going on, you know, so many different aspects of trying to produce the building. That's probably would be my word of advice is like to limit your vision for what you think you need to learn. You know, like working on that project, I didn't think I needed to learn what they were asking me to learn, but it turns out I actually kind of did. And that was probably the best experience for me at the time, but I didn't get it. And so like, don't limit your vision of what you want to become or what you think you need to learn to succeed. Architecture is one of those like rare professions where everything that I think we can do and, and learn just helps make us better architects and better kind of stewards of our, our mission to try to you know build build cities and build better environments for everyone around us it's, it's kind of daunting and then but brandon's right though I mean, within that though you have to persevere there's definitely gonna be a lot of things you know thrown your way and that you know can get you off your game a little bit but you got to get right back on it and and then realize that this is all going to make me you know better at the end of the day yeah, i think that's when they just kind of bring it back into roles 70 Rainy, I've been on 70 Rainy for four years. The challenges are trying to keep everybody engaged. We get tired, we get exhausted, and you got to find ways to be passionate. We have wonderful people here to keep the passion going. And when you look out the window, there's a ton of passion right in front of you. And that's going to keep people motivated, continue to push the envelope with design. Final question. I typically ask, like, what's next for the firm? But I'm curious from your perspective, what's next for the city of Austin? You're seeing it. I mean, I think you look around town, I mean, there's just... The city's growing up and we're about to really kind of learn what it's like to be a real city and have these really large issues to deal with, like gentrification, like transportation. And it's a, it's going to become very, very interesting here in the, in the next couple of years. I think we're now, we've developed enough to where we see the we see the impacts of the development. Some are extremely great. We get a beautiful new skyline, wonderful amenities for the city. City Library, a fantastic site, and probably underutilized for what that site could have been, but a great amenity to the city. We're, we're starting to figure out what Austin is going to kind of transition and be. I think you'll have the, the vibrancy of the university and the students. We have the technology. It's always going to be here, but where it goes next, I'm going to tell. We do have this really interesting crystal ball into where things will happen. Kind of a good example for me was my youngest daughter's in third grade, and I think I started working on a capital complex project when she was in kindergarten. And I remember telling some of the parents in that class, hey, we're working on this stuff out in the capital, so it's super cool. Right, a couple buildings, brand new mall, and they're all like, okay, whatever. You know, and, but now, I think I, I ran into them uh, you know, a couple weeks ago. Like, is that what you were talking about three years ago? Like, is that the big site, the excavation close to the Texas State History Museum? Yeah, that was it. Three years ago, that's how long this stuff takes. We get this really interesting kind of way of looking at the city well in advance of what actually makes it out there. In Page in particular, where we have so many great projects going on right now from the Capitol Complex, the Center of Construction, more work uh, out, out north that... I think the best way to describe it is we have so many projects that are actually architecture as urbanism. They're going to completely change certain parts of the city in, a, in an amazing way. And so to Brandon's point, these part, you know, parts of the project, uh, parts of the city are coming online that you know, are really going to, I think, change the way you know, Austinites live in their city and experience their city. So it's incredibly rewarding to be able to kind of watch it grow up and, and then see that happen. But I think it's going to encourage even more demand for those better spaces. Like, why don't we have more spaces like the, the Texas Mall? I think 
when it, when it comes about. We've been kind of starved for these really amazing kind of public spaces that New York is so blessed with. I think Austin is finally now starting to create as you know areas get more urban. We're, we're protecting those open spaces and really celebrating them and, and creating them. So I think Austin has so much to look forward to. I mean, we, we see it and out here in our studio, the things that are on our on our desks, and I'm excited too for Paige for, for getting that work out there and in the public as well, so that the, the rest of the public can see what we've been up to and helping to shape this city uh, as well. The future looks really, really good for, for Austin. This is going to be one of the next great metropolises in the world. We, we have such unique characteristics here in the city that we, just, we all need to play a role and help protect it and then shape it. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what's going to come out of the, the master planning for the South Shore. I think that's something that can have another great feeling to it and great development for everybody. Hopefully, city kind of learns and kind of address some of these issues we already talked about. But I think the South Shore with adjacency and seeing what we're seeing along the waterfront overlay will, I think that'll be a really, really wonderful spot. Well, Josh Coleman and Brandon Townsend, thank you so much for participating in Austin Design Week and uh, coming on. And we really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. It was a, yeah. it was a pleasure being here. Enjoy, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to an episode of Designed, an architecture podcast. We'd appreciate you taking a moment to subscribe to us, rate us, and leave us a comment. Have a wonderful day.